Chapter 4 of The Dog Caruso and His Master. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. The Dog Caruso and His Master by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 4 Our Hero Enlarged Upon. Grumps. Two years passed away. The Mustang Valley settlement advanced prosperously, despite one or two attacks made upon it by the savages, who were, however, firmly repelled. Dick Varley had now become a man, and his pup Crusoe had become a full-grown dog. The Silver Rifle, as Dick's weapon had come to be named, was well known among the hunters and the redskins of the borderlands, and in Dick's hands its bullets were as deadly as its owner's eye was quick and true. Crusoe's education, too, had been completed. Faithfully and patiently had his young master trained his mind until he fitted him to be a meek companion in the hunt, to carry and fetch were now but trifling portions of the dog's accomplishments he could drive a fathom deep in the lake and bring up any article that might have been dropped or thrown in his swimming powers were marvelous and so powerful were his muscles that he seemed to spurn the water while passing through it with his broad chest high out of a curling wave at a speed that neither man nor beast could keep up with for a moment his intellect now was sharp and quick as a needle. He never required a second bidding. When Dick went out hunting, he used frequently to drop a mitten or a powder horn unknown to the dog, and, after walking miles away from it, would stop short and look down into the mild, gentle face of his companion. Crusoe, he said in the same quiet tones with which he would have addressed a human friend, I've dropped my mitten. Go fetch it, pup. Dick continued to call it pup from habit. One glance of intelligence passed from Crusoe's eye, and in a moment he was away at full gallop. Nor did he rest until the lost article was lying at his master's feet. Dick was loath to try how far back on his track Crusoe would run if desired. He had often gone back five and six miles at a stretch, but his powers did not stop there. He could carry articles back to the spot from which they had been taken and leave them there. He could head the game that his master was pursuing and turn it back, and he would guard any object he was desired to watch with unflinching constancy. But it would occupy too much a space and time to enumerate all Crusoe's qualities and powers. His biography will unfold them. In personal appearance, he was majestic, having grown to an immense size even for a Newfoundland. Had his visage been at all wolfish in character, his aspect would have been terrible. But he possessed, in eminent degree, that mild, humble expression of face peculiar to his race. When roused or excited, and especially when bounding through the forest with the chase in view, he was absolutely magnificent. At other times, his gait was slow, and he seemed to prefer a quiet walk with Dick Varley to anything else under the sun. But when Dick was inclined to be boisterous, Crusoe's tail and ears rose at a moment's notice, and he was ready for anything. Moreover, he obeyed commands instantly and implicitly. In this respect, 
he put to shame most of the boys of the settlement who were by no means famed for their habits of prompt obedience crusoe's eye was constantly watching for the face of his master when dick said go he went when he said come he came if he had been in the midst of an excited bound at the throat of a stag and dick had called out down crusoe he would have sunk to the earth like a stone no doubt it took many months of training to bring the dog to this state of perfection but dick accomplished it by patience perseverance and love besides all this crusoe could speak he spoke by means of the dog's dumb alphabet in a way that defies description he conversed so to speak with his extremities his head and his tail but his eyes his soft brown eyes were the chief medium of communication if ever the language of the eyes was carried to perfection it was exhibited in the person of crusoe but indeed it would be difficult to say which part of his expressive face expressed most the cocked ears of expectation the drooped ears of sorrow the bright full eye of joy the half-closed eye of contentment and the frowning eye of indignation accompanied with a slight a very slight pucker of the nose and a gleam of dazzling ivory ha no enemy ever saw this last piece of canine language without a full appreciation of what it meant then as to the tail the modulations of meaning in the varied wag of that expressive member oh it's useless to attempt description mortal man cannot conceive of the delicate shades of sentiment expressible by a dog's tail unless he has studied the subject the wag the waggle the cock the droop the slope the wriggle away with description it is impotent and valueless here as we have said crusoe was meek and mild he had been bitten on the sly by half the ill-natured cures in the settlement and had only shown his teeth in return he had no enmities though several enemies and he had a thousand friends particularly among the ranks of the weak and the persecuted whom he always protected and avenged whenever the opportunity offered a single instance of this kind will serve to show his character one day dick and crusoe were sitting on a rock beside the lake the same identical rock near which when a pup the latter had received his first lesson they were conversing as usual for dick had elicited such a fund of intelligence from the dog's mind and had injected such a wealth of wisdom into it that he felt convinced it understood every word he said this is capital weather crusoe ain't it pup Crusoe made a motion with his head, which was quite as significant as a nod. Oh, my pup, I wish that you and I might go and have a slap at the grizzly bars and look at the Rocky Mountains. Wouldn't it be nuts, pup? Crusoe looked dubious. What, you don't agree with me? Now tell me, pup, wouldn't you like to grip a bar? Still, Crusoe looked dubious, but made a gentle motion with his tail, as though he would have said, I've seen neither Rocky Mountains nor Grizzly Bars, and know nothing about em, but I'm open to conviction. You're a brave pup, rejoined Dick, stroking the dog's huge head affectionately. I wouldn't give you for ten times your weight in golden dollars, if there be such things. 
Crusoe made no reply whatever to this. He regarded it as a truism unworthy of notice. He eventually felt that a comparison between love and dollars was preposterous. At this point in the conversation, a little dog with a lame leg hobbled to the edge of the rocks in front of the very spot where Dick was seated and looked down into the water, which was deep there. Whether it did so for the purpose of admiring its very plain visage in the liquid mirror or finding out what was going on among the fish, we cannot say, as it never told us. But at that moment, a big, clumsy, savage-looking dog rushed out from the neighboring thicket and began to worry it. "'Punish him, Crusoe,' said Dick quickly. Crusoe made one bound that a lion might have been proud of, and seizing the aggressor by the back, lifted him off his legs and held him, howling in the air, at the same time casting a look towards his master for further instructions." "'Pitch him in,' said Dick, making a sign with his hand. Crusoe turned and quietly dropped the dog into the lake. Having regarded his struggles there for a few minutes with grave severity of countenance, he walked slowly back and sat down beside his master. The little dog made good its retreat as fast as three legs would carry it, and the surly dog, having swam ashore, retired sulkily, with his tail very much between his legs. Little wonder, then, that Crusoe was beloved by great and small among the well-disposed of the canine tribes of the Mustang Valley. But Crusoe was not a mere machine. When not actively engaged in Dick Barley's service, he busied himself with private little matters of his own. He undertook modest little excursions into the woods or along the margin of the lake sometimes alone, but more frequently with a little friend whose whole heart and being seemed to be swallowed up in admiration of his big companion. Whether Crusoe botanized or geologized on these excursions, we will not venture to say. Assuredly, he seemed as though he did both, for he poked his nose into every bush and tuft of moss, and turned over the stones, and dug holes in the ground, and in short if he did not understand these sciences he behaved very much as if he did certainly he knew as much about them as many of the human species do in these walks he never took the slightest notice of grumps that was the little dog's name but grumps made up for this by taking excessive notice of him when crusoe stopped grumps stopped and sat down to look at him when crusoe trotted on grumps trotted on too when crusoe examined a bush grumps sat down to watch him and when he dug a hole grumps looked into it to see what was in there grumps never helped him his sole delight was looking on they didn't converse much these two dogs to be in each other's company seemed to be happiness enough at least grumps thought so there was one point at which grumps stopped short however and ceased to follow his friend and that was when he rushed headlong into the lake and disported himself for an hour at a time in its cool waters. Crusoe was, both by nature and training, a splendid water dog. Grumps, on the contrary, held water in abhorrence, so he sat on the shores of the lake disconsolate when his friend was bathing and waited till he came out. The only time when Grumps was thoroughly nonplussed was when Dick Varley's whistle sounded faintly in the far distance. 
Then Crusoe would prick up his ears and stretch out at full gallop, clearing the ditch and fence, and break with his strong elastic bound, and leaving Grumps to patter after him as fast as his four-inch legs would carry him. Poor Grumps usually arrived at the village to find both dog and master gone, and would betake himself to his own dwelling, there to lie down and sleep and dream, perchance, of rambles and gambles with his gigantic friend. End of chapter 4